Let's pray together. Father, for some of us, we've, we would open up a Bible here and there in the course of our lives before coming to know You. It, it seemed to be a closed book and something that was impossible to understand. And then what a wonderful thing happens in our life when we're born again and, and it begins to explode to life for us, teaching us about You and about Your kingdom, Your plans for us. And we thank You that You make it a living book. And we pray that by Your Holy Spirit, You would speak to us tonight through this passage that we'll be studying this evening, that You would speak into our lives, into the current circumstances of our lives, bringing perspective and instruction, and speak into our relationship with You, we pray as well. And we ask it, Father, in Jesus' name, Amen. Please be seated. Good evening to you. Acts chapter uh, 21 uh, this evening. So if you just take a look around in the room, you'll see um, how many people are really saved that attend <laughs> Calvary Chapel of Modesto. They're all here tonight, put to just the mildest of tests, and uh, here we are, a sacrifice of praise. Now, um, for those of you who are listening perhaps to a recording later on, this is Super Bowl Sunday and the home team happens to be uh, in the Super Bowl. So what we, um, we have a rule on, on this night. Obviously, this is more important to all of us than, than the game at home if, uh, as we're here. not talking about the carnal Christians that are all at home and huddled around the pagan gods of this world. But... Uh, a lot of us are 49er fans, and so we look forward to after the service uh, with our priorities straight and proper, uh, going home and watching the game and enjoying it with the Lord in a way that others can't. Um, and, uh, and so it is important to us that we don't hear the score uh, prior to leaving. So there's a dome of silence over the place, and this I'm, I'm fairly drop-dead serious on it. I have, I have friends that they know I'm a fan of various teams and all, and they'll say, listen, I'm not going to tell you anything about the game, but you're going to really like it. <laughs> or I'm not going to tell you anything about the game, but you ought to have a shot of whiskey before you watch it uh, later on tonight. And so people just opening their mouths have a way of, of just ruining uh, everything, and so be careful there. Robbie, did I get that just about right in terms of what you would w have wanted to announce this evening? Okay. It takes special care with Robbie and I and uh, others like us in, in the room. Well, we pick things up here and formally in verse 15 uh, of chapter 21. We remember that the Apostle Paul in this chapter is making his way to the city of Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Pentecost. Uh, uh, there in Jerusalem. He has been warned as he's making his way uh, here at the end of his third missionary journey, making his way to Jerusalem. He's been told repeatedly in city after city by prophetic means that uh, chains and tribulation, imprisonment and difficulty await him uh, in Jerusalem. 
and, uh, and yet he makes his way there uh, nonetheless in God's will for his life, and now he is finally coming uh, to uh, the city. He's landed in Caesarea, and uh, now uh, he begins to make the 64-mile journey overland from the seacoast uh, city of Caesarea uh, to Jerusalem. And his third missionary journey uh, formally ends there with verse 15, and after those days we packed up and went up uh, to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and also some of the disciples, other Christians from Caesarea, uh, went with us and uh, brought with them a certain nascent of Cyprus, an early disciple, uh, and the explanation for his introduction into the passage is with whom uh, we were to lodge. And so, uh, Paul is traveling with a, a group of Christians from various uh, largely Gentile congregations that he has uh, met with on his third missionary journeys, bringing an offering uh, to meet the needs of uh, the suffering Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Uh, some have come uh, to, to present that offering and be a part of it, uh, coming to Jerusalem from these various cities, uh, as well as some that now make their way from Caesarea uh, with the Apostle Paul into uh, the city. Uh, this man by the name of Nason, he is described as an early uh, disciple. So he's a Jewish man, probably has been a Christian for a very, very long time, uh, maybe as far back as the birth of the church in Jerusalem uh, on the day of Pentecost. He opens his home up to not only the Apostle Paul, but he opens his home up to uh, Gentiles, Christians who are traveling uh, with him. His home is in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, he is uh, someone who we would maybe call cross-cultural. Uh, he is Jewish, but he is also from Cyprus, so he has exposure to uh, the Jewish religious world, uh, the culture of the Jews in Israel and in Jerusalem, but also very familiar with the Gentile culture of that day. And so, uh, Nason bringing them, lodging them there would have accomplished a couple of important things for Paul and his party. Number one, during any of the major feasts, uh, Jewish religious feasts of, uh, of the religious year, for the Jews, including the Feast of Pentecost, it would have been impossible at this point to find any kind of lodging. They say that uh, the uh, population of Jerusalem would like quadruple. It would become a million people just camped out anywhere that they could. And so here he is, and he's going to provide uh, shelter to them as they come in. Additionally, uh, Paul is uh, he's a uh, interesting person uh, and uh, a little problematic, as we're going to see in a moment. And and the Jews, even the Christian Jews, have received false reports concerning him, his attitude toward the Jewish people as he turned traitor on them and on the law of Moses and circumcision and so forth. And, uh, and so uh, people would have kept their distance from him. Nason, again, having uh, been exposed to both Gentile culture and Jewish culture, 
certainly would have had no, uh, no trouble hosting him. He would have been uh, more willing to do that than the more traditionally minded uh, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem might have been. In verse 17, we're told that when Paul came in, as well as his, uh, his, those traveling with him, they were warmly received. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren, that is the Jewish Christians there, in Jerusalem, uh, they received us uh, gladly. And then in verse 18, the following day, so Paul doesn't waste any time with what he's uh, about here. Uh, he went uh, in with us, again, those that are traveling uh, with him, Dr. Luke and Silas and maybe some others, and, uh, and went in with us, uh, Paul did to James. James is the half-brother of Jesus and uh, the author, uh, human author by the Holy Spirit of the book of James in the New Testament. He was probably a kind of the leader of the Jewish church there uh, in in uh, Jerusalem and the way that he was esteemed. And not only uh, did Paul present himself uh, there to speak with James, but then all of the elders were present uh, as, uh, as well. And so uh, he comes in and when he had greeted them, he then told them in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So he starts to tell them in detail, probably not just concerning his third missionary journey, the impact that the gospel was having, salvation, the number of Gentiles being saved uh, through his missionary uh, journey, the third one, but all three of them. Uh, James and others were already exposed to that in the Jerusalem Council as we uh, read about that in uh, chapter 15 and, uh, and uh, with, uh, with Simon Peter and others. And, and uh, here they uh, receive this, this thorough report, exciting report of Gentiles uh, becoming Christians. And when they heard it, they glorified uh, the Lord. And so they glorified the Lord for all that he was doing through the Apostle Paul uh, among the Gentiles. Um, their joy related to the salvation of the Gentiles was genuine. It was not grudging. Um, in, in any way. And uh, at this point in time, uh, the uh, Jews that had become Christians, they had finally kind of got in a, in, in a powerful way that God uh, loved and loves the Gentile world as much as he loved and loves the Jews and wants them saved. And they desired uh, salvation for the Gentiles every bit as much as they desired it, uh, though being Jews themselves for uh, the Jewish people. And then uh, they had a, a, a problem, though, with Paul coming at this time and probably Paul coming at any time. And they posed the problem to, uh, to the Apostle Paul here, and, uh, which we'll proceed through with a little bit of, of detail because it's important to understand what is and isn't happening here. This is another kind of little bit of a controversial passage. I don't think it's controversial at all, but it is for some people. And there are some people who believe that Paul made a mistake in following the suggestion of James and the other elders. And we'll take a look at why um, that uh, doesn't seem likely. And so they said then to him after listening, 
listening uh, politely to his report and eagerly. You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed. And so while the gospel is having a tremendous impact and has been uh, the focus for the most of the book of Acts uh, at, at this point after uh, the day of Pentecost and, and 5,000 people being saved, uh, Jews in a very short period of time in the course of two sermons by Peter in the early church there, uh, that focus then moved out into the Gentile world and the gospel going out there. But the work of, of the gospel, people being saved, the number of Jews being saved was a very large group of people as well. And, and they are, uh, they are uh, declared to be uh, those who have believed or trusted in Jesus for salvation. And they are uh, all zealous uh, for uh, for the law. Uh, but they've been informed, Paul is told, about you, that what you're teaching out there on your missionary journeys, that you teach uh, all the Jews uh, who are among the Gentiles to, number one, forsake Moses. That is the law of the Moses. Uh, number two, that they ought not to circumcise their children, uh, nor to walk according uh, to the customs. And say, say, they say, we've got a problem here. You've been warmly greeted. There's a lot of confusion. You're a controversial uh, figure here in coming back. And these are the rumors that are floating around related uh, to you, that you te people are teach you're teaching uh, not only the Gentile world, but Gentiles forsake the law of Moses, circumcision, and then any other rights that have to do with uh, with a, a Jewish uh, heritage. And so they say, what do we do with this? What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. And so the elders of, of the church there, they're going to meet, and, uh, and, and this is going to need to be uh, discussed. And so they have uh, this plan that they're going to propose um, to uh, the, the Apostle Paul. So again, the teaching that Paul was telling the Jews living in, in the Gentile lands, forget about Moses, cease observing the law of Moses, no need to circumcise your sons anymore, which is a mark of the covenant between the Jews uh, and God, um, uh, abandoned uh, all of your uh, Jewish uh, heritage and Jewish customs. And so like uh, uh, most rumors, um, none of these rumors were true about him uh, at all. Nobody had taken the time to discover what he was actually teaching out there. One of my favorite <laughs> lines that I've heard about, uh, about lies and about rumors is that uh, 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 a lie uh, is halfway around the world before truth can get its boots on. And it certainly seems to be that way. Uh, nothing moves faster. And if they thought uh, that was true back when people put their boots on when they were getting out of bed, which is way before, you know, this uh, instant social media today, uh, they'd be mortified by how quickly a, a, a lie can, can spread. But Paul did teach concerning the law of Moses and concerning salvation is that everyone, Jew and Gentile, were all saved the same way. We're saved by putting our faith in Jesus Christ, 
It is an act on our part, putting our faith in Him uh, for the forgiveness of our sins. And His death, His burial, His resurrection being the satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins. A point comes in our life where we do that and then and, uh, everyone is saved uh, that way. And Paul taught that concerning the law of Moses and salvation. And that the keeping of the law of Moses and circumcision and Jewish traditions and culture, they played no part at all in a person's salvation. But he wasn't, certainly wasn't talking these things down or making an, uh, an issue of a person's Jewish uh, heritage in order to be a Christian. After all, um, he had Timothy circumcised so that he wouldn't become an issue on this third missionary journey. And so he's, uh, this is, you know, this contradicts not only his teaching, but also his, his actions. Now, it's very important to understand that in all of this, Paul, that uh, Paul is writing to Jew and Gentiles, who uh, and and when Paul was speaking here uh, of of these kind of things, that Paul was speaking to Jews and Gentiles here who are already saved. They're already Christians. These are already believers there uh, in the city of, of Jerusalem. They've been born again, and they've been born again solely on the basis of their faith in, uh, in, in Christ. And so uh, none of this has anything to do, as they're talking about the treatment of the law of Moses or the treatment of circumcision or the treatment of certain ordinances or traditions of the Jews. What's in play? here and what's going on between Paul and the uh, leaders of the church in Jerusalem and other Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, what's in play here is not salvation. That's not what Paul is, is going to kind of compromise on related to uh, here as the passage uh, goes on. Salvation is clear and uh, he doesn't move upon that uh, at, at uh, all. And what is happening here isn't having anything to do with how a person is saved, but how we choose to express our our love and our worship to God once we are saved uh, within a given uh, culture. And so a Christian, uh, as Paul uh, wrote, he said a Christian can be circumcised or uncircumcised. A Christian can keep uh, the Jewish Sabbath or not keep the Jewish uh, Sabbath. They can stay, a person can stay connected to the religious culture that they were uh, raised in uh, and, or move on from it uh, if they want to and they're not bound by it upon uh, becoming a Christian. And so we have total freedom uh, based upon our own personal convictions to make these kind of choices as long as we understand that whether we worship God on Sunday or we worship God on Saturday or whether we have our boys circumcised or not or whether we, uh, 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 these other traditions and, and uh, that are, are a part of, uh, of the Jewish heritage, as long as we realize that none of these things or the religious heritage that we come from, that none of these things have anything to do with our right standing before God and our, our salvation. Our right standing before God is established on the basis of our faith in, in uh, Jesus Christ. And so I can practice a lot of different things 
that are not contrary to the Word of God, and I have a freedom to practice them as a uh, Christian. But the moment I begin to say, I am better than you, or you are worse than me, because I practice these things and you don't, now we're in trouble. And now I'm, uh, now I'm dealing with self-righteousness. And these things are no longer liberties for me to uh, engage in as a part of my worship of God. But I believe that somehow the practice or the failure to practice these things, refusal to practice these things, makes me better in the eyes of God than people that take a different stand than this, uh, than, than I do. And then... We make these things a litmus test for spiritual maturity or the seriousness of other Christians about uh, their Christian walk or a test for whether we are going to uh, fellowship with them uh, or, or not. And so this has entirely to do with uh, sanctification, uh, the life that we live and we believe God has called us to since we are already saved and not as the means by which we are saved. So they present this, uh, this proposal in verses uh, 23 through 25. And uh, they said, listen, uh, we've got, uh, tell, therefore, uh, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Uh, take them, be purified with them, pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that uh, all may know that those things of which they have been informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. So here's the proposal. They've obviously given some thought to this. Paul is coming. These are the lies that have been and rumors that have been presented related to him. What can we do to um, dispel these lies and these wrong uh, characterizations that people have now of the Apostle Paul. And so they proposed uh, that there were four Jewish Christian men that had taken a vow. This is apparently a, uh, a Nazarite vow that is spoken of in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 6. And a Nazarite vow was a vow in a ceremony from the Old Testament in which uh, a person would engage in it to kind of express a special commitment or dedication of their life uh, to God in an extraordinary uh, way. It was a, a vow that a person could make and it was a way of, of communicating to God their desire, uh, uh, the utmost desire in their heart for holiness and, and living a life of godliness. During the season of, of a Nazarite vow, among other things, a Nazarite was not allowed to cut his hair. And so, uh, whether it would be for weeks or months or years, his hair would grow. No, uh, any means of cutting it would uh, touch his head. And uh, after the end of the term of his Nazarite vow, however long he determined that to be between him and the Lord, then his head would be shaved 
uh, the hair that grew during that period of his dedication uh, to God uh, by virtue of the fact that his whole body belonged to God, even the hair that grew on his head belonged to God. In the symbolic way, that hair would then be uh, offered to the Lord uh, by burning it in association with uh, what is known as the peace offering. And this is what's referred to in verse 24, uh, so that they may shave their uh, heads. There were several sacrifices that were involved in making a Nazarite vow, uh, sacrifices of animals, and so it was an expensive kind of thing to uh, in, engage in. And so they suggested to Paul that he be purified uh, with them, not engage in the same vow, but be purified with them, some kind of a ceremonial or ritual cleansing, maybe uh, being uh, plunged under uh, water uh, in, in what is the Jews call a mikvah, kind of similar to our baptism, but with an entirely different uh, meaning. And, uh, and so uh, that, that he would uh, engage in this rite of ritual purification involving water, which wasn't unusual when a Jew came out of pagan lands, came out of Gentile uh, lands. It wasn't unusual for a Jew then uh, to go through a ceremonial cleansing, uh, coming back into uh, the land of Israel, and it just simply uh, communicated their desire to be cleansed from whatever defilement they might have picked up in the Gentile world and uh, have that cleansed away, whatever of the world that had attached itself to them as they would now approach God uh, in worship. And so uh, this uh, rite of purification, it was not the, a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow required a, a minimum period of 30 days, and Paul's going to be arrested shortly at day seven. They, they uh, encouraged Paul and suggest to him that they, uh, he pay the expenses uh, so that they may shave their heads. And so, again, the cost of the animals involved in this uh, entire uh, 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 Nazarite vow, especially the animals that would be sacrificed at the end of that vow, uh, would be very, very uh, expensive. And they asked Paul to pick up those expenses as a, a gesture of and as a, an example to the Jewish people that he had not uh, completely divorced himself from his Jewish heritage. And so the effect that they hoped that this would have upon the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem is that they would know that uh, the rumors about Paul throwing uh, uh, the law of Moses, circumcision, the rites uh, in the Old Testament, the rites of the Jewish people under the bus uh, as soon as he's outside of the land of Israel, uh, that all of those rumors are unfounded and that Paul walked orderly and he uh, kept the law. And, and James and and the elders, they're very quick to offer Paul in verse 25 a reassurance here concerning the Gentile Christians that what he, they are proposing him to do in Jerusalem, this was not something that they uh, w were going to encumber the Gentile Christians with. Uh, nothing would change. And so they said, but concerning the Gentiles who believe, again talking about Christians, we have written and decided that they should observe no uh, such thing 
anything except that they should keep themselves from uh, things offered to idols, from blood, uh, from things strangled, and from uh, the sexual and from sexual immorality. And so we remember back in chapter 15 that great Jerusalem council. What in the world do we do with Christianity? We've got people becoming Christians out of a Jewish background, people becoming Christians out of a Gentile background. And so how do we reconcile this? Do we make the Gentiles Jews for the sake of unity? Do we make the Jews Gentiles for the sake uh, of uh, unity? And, uh, and as they, they grappled with all of that, you might remember that uh, it, it was determined by the Holy Spirit that Gentiles would not be brought under the law following their salvation. They were just to, uh, uh, for the unity of the body of Christ and being able to fellowship in these ch- churches in the Gentile world, enjoy fellowship with, with Jewish believers, stay away from things offered to idols, away f- uh, from blood and improperly ble- uh, bled meat and sexual immorality. Now, uh, uh, this is important to realize. Here you have uh, James and the leaders of, of the Jerusalem church making clear uh, their understanding that neither Jews nor Gentiles are saved on the basis of the keeping of the law of Moses, and that neither of them are under it uh, for living a holy life before uh, God. And that what they're discussing here has entirely to do with the customs of the Jews. Verse 21, their customs and their uh, heritage. And so uh, they were great with the fact that salvation uh, of the Gentiles occurred independent of the law. They didn't have the slightest interest in turning uh, them into Jews once they were saved. And then communicating an understanding on the part of both Paul and James that Gentiles shouldn't then be forced to become Jews uh, in becoming Christians, and the Jews would not have to abandon their spiritual heritage in becoming a Christian. Paul uh, uh, liked the proposal. He agreed to it. He did exactly as they had proposed, and he took men, uh, and uh, the very next day, so these are people who get stuff done. Man, I'm so glad. Well, we'll have a meeting on Monday and a meeting on Tuesday and a meeting on Wednesday and a meeting on, you know, uh, the whole book of Acts was filled with meetings. But these were people of action. And Paul then took the men and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple, the grounds of the temple, to announce the uh, expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. And so it's declared what will be the length of their uh, Nazarite vow that they're going to be keeping, uh, after which uh, their heads would be shaved, the hair and and the offerings be made uh, to God as an expression uh, of, uh, of their uh, worship. It's important for, uh, to understand a couple of really critical things here. And uh, first concerning the sacrifices associated with the Nazarite vow. Uh, the sacrifices associated with the Nazarite vow had nothing to do with atonement under the o- Old Testament. It had nothing to do with at one with God. It had nothing to do with what we would call uh, salvation, which is what atonement uh, 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 is. Nothing associated with the Nazarite vow, including the sacrifices associated with the Nazarite vow in 
any way uh, diminished the work of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice uh, upon the cross as the, the satisfying payment for our sins. And so this did not represent compromise uh, concerning Jesus uh, on the part of Paul uh, at all. Second, uh, concerning James' statement to Paul in verse 24, uh, where he declares, and that you yourself walk orderly and keep the law. So um, some have interpreted this as meaning that James believed in the necessity of keeping the law of Moses as a, a means of salvation and right standing before God, and uh, as opposed to just a simple faith in Jesus, and that this is what he was asking Paul to communicate in his proposal, that what you do here now is you're going to communicate before all the Jewish Christians here in Jerusalem that salvation is based upon the keeping of the law of of Moses. Some people think that this is what James is, uh, the brother of Jesus, is proposing to the Apostle Paul, and that the Apostle Paul compromises in going along with it. To me, that, that's just absolutely inconceivable. First, that James would even believe such a thing. He, he knew full well that salvation is based solely upon Jesus' death, His burial, and His resurrection, and that nothing could be added to that for salvation. Not the keeping of the law of Moses or circumcision or, uh, or anything. And James wrote of this in his own epistle, which by this time in the book of Acts is already in circulation. He's already made uh, his, uh, his understanding of all of this uh, well-known. And second, it's inconceivable to me that Paul would ever agree to uh, such a thing under any circumstances, even under the threat uh, of death. He came to Jerusalem willing to die as a witness for Jesus Christ, and to be faithful to his call upon his life. And, and he meant it. Uh, chains and tribulation were going to come his way before we get to the end of, of the chapter, to think that he's going to walk in now into Jerusalem and then fold on the issue of how a person is saved solely on the basis of faith and not on the basis uh, of works is uh, not to understand uh, the Apostle Paul. I think it's helpful to realize that but at this point in the book of Acts, uh, concerning Paul's epistles or his letters, that First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, uh, his great treatise by the Holy Spirit on salvation, uh, his letter to the Romans, all of these had already been written. And all of them were in uh, full circulation by this time in the early church, and, and they all represented his unmistakable, uh, unflinching uh, conviction and stand upon this truth related to, uh, to salvation. And it comes through faith alone and not by keeping the law or works. And that was a view he never, ever deviated from. And when I look at this charge against Paul, I think to myself, well, 
you know, in terms of I hear people saying that this was a mistake on his part. I hear people uh, like me saying that it wasn't a mistake on, on Paul's part and we can be confused by it and think, well, if I could just know uh, how Jesus perceived uh, these actions of the Apostle Paul in the city of Jerusalem, then I would have the definitive view for what it is that Paul was actually doing on this scene. And it's interesting uh, that uh, we are told exactly what Jesus thought about what Paul did here in a couple of chapters in Acts chapter 23, verse 11. We're told that the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. You've made a mess of everything in Jerusalem, compromised your faith. We're going to have to burn all of your epistles because of the damage you've done here. No, that's not what it says. Be of good cheer, Paul, for you have testified for me in Jerusalem. And so you must bear witness uh, at Rome. And not a hint of condemnation of Paul uh, in this scene. And if Jesus is hesitant to uh, condemn him, then I'm certainly hesitant to condemn him uh, on, on this issue. A couple of things that, uh, uh, an application for our lives here re- related to this. I think we have something uh, very, very precious uh, put before us here in a kind of a revelation of Paul's uh, heart and a revelation into why his life and his ministry was as effective as, uh, as it was. And the, the key, one of the key principles that he operated on in his life and in his uh, ministry. And he wrote of it, again, in a letter that was already in circulation, a letter to uh, the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22, where he declared to the weak, I have become weak that I might win the weak. And as he talks about uh, to the free, I, I've made myself a servant to all, to the Jews, I became a Jew. To those who were without the law, I became as one without the law and so forth. And then he comes, and to the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. And then here it is, I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And now I do this for the gospel's sake that I may be a partaker of it with you. And what Paul was willing to do and to be, be all things to all men in order for them to receive the gospel in an unencumbered unencumbered way uh, in his life, he was also willing to do in uh, in order to uh, be a unifying influence in the body of Christ. You think about here, you're looking at uh, Jew and Gentile cultures and basically um, Jewish and Mediterranean Gentile culture or European Gentile culture. You look around the world and Christians are in (laughs) countries and continents all around the world. We fill the world. And there are certain expressions of, of worship toward God that is different in one part of the world as, as it is in the United States uh, of America. And so this Paul, when he would come into these different environments, he would say, I would become all things to all men 
for the sake of that uh, unity. Again, in uh, a famous saying that everyone ought to hear at least once and, and more often, but the context is, is great here. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. It's one thing to say that. It's very fabulous line. But it's another thing to believe it. And it's another thing to believe it, not just about myself, but to believe it concerning other people and believe it concerning other Christians. And essentials, unity. We have to be united on that. And non-essentials, liberty. And a, and a respect for people to exercise their liberty. And then all things charity or love. And here... They model for us in this early church how to hold our own convictions concerning non-essentials, issues that are addressed biblically, but issues that we can come to a different opinion about and still be uh, Christians, still remain united as Christians, love one another as Christians, respect one another as, as Christians, much uh, less to uh, treat another Christian is an enemy for seeing those things differently. And those kind of, uh, of differences can include uh, differences in our understanding and our convictions concerning spiritual gifts or the timing of the rapture, whether it happens before the tribulation or after the tribulation. I'm not saying that it's not important. It's very important. Uh, but uh, a person can hold a different view and, uh, and it's not an essential uh, the day of the week that we worship on, whether food offered to idols uh, and how to handle those things or what the level of our interaction with the pagan culture around us should be. Christians have very different uh, uh, convictions related to this and different callings by God upon our lives in, in, in that, uh, that way. When I travel as a pastor... Uh, whether it's uh, nationally or internationally, and uh, I'm speaking somewhere, I always elevate and honor their understanding of non-essentials above uh, my own. So if a suit and tie is required, uh, then I will pack a suit and tie. And only God and I know how hard it is for me to pack a suit and tie. Uh, into a piece of luggage and travel to another part of, the, uh, part of the world and then to put it on. But I will do that. Whatever is, is required that um, I don't become an obstacle in what is happening. I remember one time I went to Indiana and um, it was the first time that I had been there and I was scheduled to speak at a, at a conference and I was staying at a, a man's house and uh, with his family, and uh, he has since uh, become a, a Calvary Chapel pastor. Uh, but he, he gave me one word of advice before uh, we left to head off to uh, the conference center. He said, whatever you do, don't say anything bad about Bobby Knight. And some of you, this goes completely over your head, but Bobby Knight was a legend in Indiana basketball with uh, Indiana University and uh, the last person uh, to coach a, a team uh, to the national championship and for the team to go undefeated. But he had a little problem with his temper and uh, he could throw chairs across the court and these kind of things and all. But in Indiana, 
in Indiana, they may feel free to criticize Bobby Knight in the privacy of their own homes. Uh, but a long-haired guy back then uh, from California wasn't free to do that. And so I had complete liberty to speak eloquently and at length about Bobby Knight's behavior, and yet I refrained. You see what a big man I am and how loving and caring I am. If I were a woman, I was traveling to uh, another part of the world and Christians gathered and it was their convictions that women were to wear head coverings uh, in, in that environment. I would readily wear a, a, a head covering as a part of their respect for God, not salvation, respect for God in, in, uh, in, in worship. If they, if they person wants to, a group wants to meet on Saturday, I will be very happy uh, to meet on Saturday rather than Sunday. And if you're going to attend church in Jerusalem, then you're going to attend church on Saturday and not on Sunday because of their convictions related to uh, the Sabbath day, at least cultural uh, convictions. And so the elevation of these kind of things. And so here is the Apostle Paul the, to, to learn the links that he went to to maintain a unity within the body of, of Christ. In the United States of America, we will split a church over the color of the hymnals or the smallest kind of thing and uh, break a fellowship with another Christian or another group within a church and now we've got sex within the church and uh, different groups over the smallest little things. And it's so instructive to look at Paul and say, look what he, the links that he uh, went to. And so all of these things were done and when the seven days were almost ended of the feast, uh, the Jews from Asia, uh, seeing him in the temple, they stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on the Apostle Paul in a non-Pentecostal way. So you have Jews from uh, Asia. This is talking about uh, Western Turkey, modern Western Turkey, the area of Ephesus and the churches around Ephesus where the Apostle Paul had just invested three years of his life in establishing a church there and in churches in the surrounding area. And so they come now, as Jewish pilgrims did from all around the world, they come now into Jerusalem. They see Paul in the area of the temple, and they freak out over it, and uh, they stirred up the whole crowd. Again, we're talking about a massive number of people. Uh, you ever see related to uh, in the Islamic world where you will see the Friday prayers and maybe a picture of the prayers going up uh, on the Temple Mount or related to the Al-Aqsa Mosque and, and there's not, you can't even see the limestone or whatever stone it is underneath. It's just bodies uh, bent over the entire length. We're talking about an absolute, that kind of density of pilgrims and, and uh, Jews there worshiping uh, at the temple, and they begin to stir up a crowd of that size. They laid hands on Paul. They cried out then to everyone that was there, men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches 
all men everywhere. So uh, talk about the failure to understand uh, qualifying statements. Uh, He teaches all men everywhere against the people. Who are the people? The Jews. And and uh, teaches uh, and they and he teaches against this place the temple and furthermore he's even brought greeks gentiles into the temple and he's defiled this holy place and so they accused him wrongly uh, of of bringing uh, uh, Trophimus into the area of the temple as a gentile um, but the facts are never that important to these kind of people, and it was certainly a means by which to uh, stir up uh, uh, unbelievable religious fervor, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city, not just in the area of the temple, but all the city was disturbed and pictured in your mind. I mean, just like a uh, just a frenzy as it just goes out in waves uh, throughout the city. And the people then began to run together and they seized Paul. And you underline that word in your mind, seized. They seized him and they dragged him out of the temple, the temple grounds, and immediately the doors were shut. And now as they were seeking to kill him, wow, Seized, dragged, seeking to kill. And there's no, there is no crowd that is more dangerous in the world uh, than a frenzied religious crowd. And, uh, and they were. And while they're trying to kill Paul now, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. This was something that uh, all Romans that were overseeing this part of the Roman Empire feared. Was on a on one of the main Jewish feast days that a uh, a some kind of a problem would erupt there in the area of the temple with a million Jews in just one city. How easy it would be to lose control of it. And so here the one that is over the garrison there, we're told historically that about a thousand troops and, uh, and cavalry were kept there in the Antonia Fortress uh, uh, near the grounds of, of the temple and uh, in order for keeping peace during these feasts. And he immediately took soldiers, centurions, plural. Centurions are Roman, they were Roman kind of sergeants and uh, over a hundred men. So we're talking about at least two centurions and at least 200 men begin to run down into the crowd. And uh, when the crowd saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Otherwise they would have beat him to death. And then the commander came near and took him, commanded him to be bound with two chains, and he said, to, uh, asked him uh, who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude, they cried out, he's one thing, others said something else. And when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he then commanded Paul to be taken into the barracks, into uh, Roman territory, military territory there 
uh, within the fortress. And when he reached the stairs, as they're taking Paul uh, in that direction, he had, Paul then had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. So here he's kind of got a crowd surfing going on with it chained up and trying to get out of there. They still want to kill him, uh, even with the Roman military involved. And and for the multitude of the people followed after, crying, away with him. And then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? And he replied, can you speak Greek? Paul speaks to him in, in Greek. And then the, the Roman uh, commander of, of the, the garrison, he said, are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? It's like, um, no. I don't know if all of us Jews look the same to you, uh, but no, I am not that guy. And Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, and I am a citizen of Rome and no insignificant city. And I implore you to permit me to speak to the people. And then he gave him permission to speak. Paul stood on the stairs and he motioned with his hands to the people. And there was a great silence. They're interested in hearing what it is that he has to say. And he spoke to them in the Hebrew uh, language. Probably not, but what is in, inferred here is not uh, the actual Hebrew language, but the language that the Hebrews spoke generally on a daily basis in the ancient world, and that is Aramaic. Uh, the commander probably allows him to address the crowd because this seems to him at this point in time the best way to understand what in the world is going on here. And so when Paul begins to speak in Aramaic, it's possible this isn't helpful for the commander at all. He may only speak Greek, and he's not going to understand what it is that's being said, and that sets the stage then for Paul speaking to them uh, and the impact of that in chapter 22. Yes, you are free to read ahead and uh, know what that is uh, before next week, and we tear into it next week. Preparation for the Lord's Supper tonight, would you just turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First, First Corinthians chapter 11. Paul talking to the church at Corinth related to the partaking of, of the Lord's Supper. In verse 17, he says, Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. And therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those? Uh, who come to this meeting as Christians who have nothing to eat like you do? And what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, 
that the Lord on Jesus on the night, same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's uh, body. So the mistreatment in the church at Corinth, people who were wealthy were coming to maybe a Sunday evening service in which there was a communal meal as well as the partaking uh, of the Lord's Supper. And those that were rich would bring this great kind of buffet. They would eat it in front of all these others who were slaves and had hardly anything uh, to eat, and Paul rebukes it. And he calls it a sin against the body of Christ. And the body of Christ being made up of all of these Christians that have come together. And so here is this expression of pride and selfishness on the part of, of some of these Christians, and it's creating a great division. And so Paul rebukes them for doing this, bringing such a, an outward exhibition of pride and selfishness into a meeting uh, in, in, uh, where uh, the symbols of other-centeredness and humility are going to be partaken of. I mean, the, the gulf between what this represents in the life that some of them were living, he rebukes it. And I think as we think about the Apostle Paul here tonight and the great links that he went to for the unity of the body of Christ and to allow that to search our own lives. One of the great things that's happened in the last um, 20 or so years um, in, that I have a, been a pastor is that a lot of this kind of thing between Christians of different denominations or non-denominations, these walls are breaking down in a powerful way. And I think that it's, it's directly proportional to the degree to which we are now facing uh, opposition and even persecution as Christians in the United States of America. And if there is an upside to opposition to us and persecution against us in this, uh, in this country that is growing, the upside is, is that increasingly we are recognizing how much we need one another. No matter what our differences in terms of how we worship and how we handle liberties. And that's a healthy thing for us to allow to search our hearts tonight, our attitude toward the rest of the body of Christ or somebody else that we know that we judge based upon something that is a non-essential in their life or even cut off fellowship from them related to that. I think also as 
as well he, when Paul talks about partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, and, and he's talking about their conduct. And what he's communicating here is that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, it is a retrospect looking back upon what Christ has done for us. It's an introspect into our own lives here tonight as we sit before the Lord. It's a prospect. We remember that Jesus is coming back. But it is a time, if we don't do it at any other time in our lives as Christians, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, it's a time to stop and to search my life for willful sin, deliberate sin, that I am practicing in my life. And that if it is present, uh, then this is the time to confess it and repent of it. And Paul is so strong as to say that if I am a Christian in a meeting like this related to the Lord's Supper and I'm unwilling to confess my sin and my repentance, not to partake of the symbols. Because Jesus didn't just die on the cross. Uh, his body broken, his, his blood shed in order to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. But he died upon the cross also to provide us with the power to live an entirely different kind of life. And there's a way in which we, as we stop and we look at the sacrifice that has been uh, made, not only for our salvation, but for our sanctification, our holiness, the ability to live an entirely different kind of life. And it's a time to search our lives to see whether the life that I am living is consistent with or worthy, so to speak, of the sacrifice that has been made. And so tonight we want to allow that to do its work in our lives as we partake of the symbols of Jesus' body and blood given not only for us to have eternal life, but also to live a different kind of life as we're making our way to heaven. So if the men would come forward, we will pass out the Lord's Supper. And if the worship team would come forward. Uh, we will uh, worship the Lord. And uh, as the bread is brought, put before you, and just take a cracker, later with the cup, hold on to it, we'll pray together, and we will partake uh, together.